We truly serve a great God. We're going to go to Joshua 24, and we're going to start with a scripture memory verse of the month, because I think it's fitting. As you consider our great God, consider our scripture memory verse of the month. Joshua 24, 15. Read it with me, if you would. Joshua 24, 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua twenty four fifteen. As we worship our great God, we must choose to serve our great God. It's more than just declaring his greatness. It's choosing to serve the God of the universe. We're going to continue in Joshua. And one of the things that is striking to me is God's timing. Uh, I prepared my outline several weeks ago. I prepared the sermon schedule several months ago. And as we go into this business meeting that we have on the 18th, there's going to be little pieces in the sermons that I think you're going to say, wait a second. And I'm going to tell you that's God's timing. So look for God's timing in some of these things that we talk about today. But turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20. So I want to start off by talking with you just briefly about preparing. You see, there's, there are all sorts of phrases that you might have heard about preparing something. Have you ever heard the phrase, hope for the best, plan for the worst? <laughs> hope for the best, plan for the worst. The other day, actually it was probably three weeks ago, my mother-in-law, uh, I think she was planning a trip, hoping to go to Hawaii, but in the back of her mind, she had a nagging question that she asked me. It's really a hope for the best, plan for the worst type of question. She asked me, suppose we're on an airplane out over the middle of the ocean and the engine goes out. What do the pilots do? Well, this is a hope for the best, plan for the worst situation. It turns out, just so everyone can, can take a little bit of relax, there is a certification called ETOPS 120 that airplanes that fly to Hawaii have to go through. And what it is, is the airplane is designed... And the pilots are trained so that if you lose an engine, you can fly for 120 minutes. And whenever you go on a long flight over the ocean, everything is planned out so that there is an airport within 120 minutes of the airplane at any time along the route. So like if you fly to China, you'll notice they like hug up the Alaska coast and go around over by Russia. That is ETOPS 120. They are planning for 120 minutes to any airport. So you can relax. They hope for the best, they plan for the worst. That's what we're going to be talking about today in Joshua 20. What I want you to note in Joshua 20 is the role of holiness. You see, we live in a fallen world, and we need to plan for holiness. We need to plan for holiness. We've been studying Joshua, and coming into this chapter, we've been talking about land allotment. You know, the tribe of Judah received this long list of cities, which we didn't read. Uh, the tribe of Ephraim receives this long list of cities, which we didn't read. But the idea is they were allotting land to all of the tribes. 
Here, what I want you to see is they planned for holiness. So the first point that I'm going to talk with you about comes out of Joshua 20, verses 1 through 6. And that says that planning for holiness requires planning for life in a fallen world. Planning for holiness requires that we plan for life in a fallen world. God's standard for our life is holiness. But we live in a world full of sin. The curse has devastated our world. Adam and Eve's initial sin set in motion a fallen world. We're living a holy life is frankly difficult. You probably, hopefully, are aware of this. It's hard to go through our world and live separate unto God in a holy way. There's temptation. There's all sorts of things around us. We need to plan for holiness. Let's read verses 1 through 6 here in Joshua 20. Joshua 20, 1 through 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. Okay, what are we going to do with this passage? This is an interesting one. Remember what's happening. They've been allotting cities to the various tribes in Israel. You get this area of the nation. You get this area of the nation. You can build your farm over here. That's the sort of procedure that's been taking place. And now they get to this important allotment of cities of refuge. So let me give you a a hypothetical story. Jeremiah is out cutting trees down. And he's got his axe. And Jeremiah is swinging his axe. If you've ever swung an axe, you don't just go light, right? You swing an axe if you're going to chop a tree down. Jeremiah is swinging his axe, and as he comes around, something terrible happens. The head of the axe slips off, flies through the air, and hits Miriam, his neighbor's wife. As devastating as it is, Miriam dies from the strike, from the blow. In the ancient world, is Jeremiah guilty of her death or not? The answer is yes. Jeremiah is guilty of having killed his neighbor's wife now. Did he intend to do this? No. But he's still guilty, and Miriam's husband has the legal right to go after Jeremiah and kill him. What is Jeremiah going to do? Because we don't want to start this blood feud. Well, God had a way of handling this. God told Jeremiah, you can flee to a city of refuge. And in that city of refuge, you cannot be touched by the avenger of blood. You may never leave the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. 
but at least you have your life. So that's the situation that's going on when we read this. Because life in a fallen world is inevitably marked. Life in a fallen world is inevitably marked by some bad days. There are going to be times when things just go wrong in the fallen world. The fall is devastating. We use the word sin. We talk about sin. Sin happens. Sin is part of each of our lives. The Bible talks about sin a lot. In fact, there's three real primary ways that the Bible talks about sin. The Bible talks about sin of purposeful commission. You go into the gas station, you steal a candy bar, you put it in your pocket, you walk out. That's sin. That's a sin of purposeful commission. But sin can also come from inner actions and thoughts. You see somebody's car, you think that's a really nice car, that's a really nice car, and you just start dwelling on how I I want that car. I'm going to do everything I can to want that car. You start to covet that car. That's a sin of an inner thought. Those are two types of sins. But there's also a sinful state that until we accept Jesus as our Savior, we all exist in a sinful, fallen, unredeemed state because of Adam. Adam, the first man, sinned, and that sin is passed down on each of us so that when we are born, we are sinners. I enjoy when, uh, when my brothers have kids one of the things I enjoy doing is the first time I hold the baby, I enjoy calling them a sinner. <laughs> so you hold the baby, oh, you're one cute sinner. It's true. That is life in a fallen world. I don't know if my brother appreciates it, but... That's life in a fallen world. Life in a fallen world is inevitably marked by some bad days. And we need to realize that sin, regardless of the intention, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. It's hard to say, but it does. Sin has consequences. One of the main consequences of sin is separation from God. But even on earth, there are physical consequences to sin. Things that people have to deal with. So the situation that God's people were in, an extreme situation, is what about the case of unintentional death when you accidentally kill somebody? The answer is you're still guilty of killing somebody. And this was the solution, the cities of refuge. So let's take this and let's try to mold it a little bit and make sense of it for us today. First of all, I told you, life in the fallen world is inevitably marked by some bad days. There are times where you are going to fall into sin. You live in a fallen world. You yourself have a sin nature. If you have accepted Jesus as your savior, the Holy Spirit has declared war on your sin nature, but you still have sin nature. Well, let me go to the next point that I want to say coming out of this. Life in a fallen world may require God's people to be there for somebody who sins. That's what the church is all about. The church is a place of refuge for sinners. The church is the place where people can come to seek 
refuge from sins. It is not that the church is going to protect somebody from a society that is, you know, there is a penalty to pay for sin. But it is that the church has the answer. The answer to sin is Christ. The church has been called the hospital for people who are sick in their sins. That's who we should be. Life in the fallen world will require that we are there for sinners. We as a church need to be available, willing to offer redemption to those who are fallen in sin. And that redemption is not something that I possess. It's not something you possess. It's the redemption that comes by telling them of Christ, the Christ who died on the cross, paying their penalty for sin. Yes, sin happens. In fact, you can do everything right and still be wrong because we live in a fallen world. Just like the axe head slipping off the axe. By the way, that's the example that Moses gave back in the Old Testament. Just like the axe head that slips off the axe, the person maybe didn't do anything wrong, but they still were responsible because sin occurred and God's justice demands penalty for sin, demands payment for sin. Jesus paid that price. We can offer it to others. I also want you to notice that life in a fallen world requires sacrifice. I want you to see the ways that this played out in these cities of refuge. Jeremiah, upon discovering that Miriam has died, needs to find a place to go for safety. Because the avenger of blood, Miriam's husband, is going to come after him. So Jeremiah packs up a few things and heads out. Jewish tradition holds that their cities of refuge, if you look on a map and you look at Jewish tradition, they were spaced out so that there was roughly 10 miles from anywhere in the country to a city of refuge. You were always within about 10 miles of a city of refuge. The roads on the way to the city of refuge were the best roads in the nation. They kept them in good shape. On the cities of refuge roads, there were signs that literally pointed and said refuge, refuge in Hebrew, not in English, sorry. There were even people whose job in the nation was to be alongside the road and run alongside somebody if they were seeking refuge in order to help them get to the city of refuge. The people made sacrifice to bring people into the cities of refuge, to offer protection for people who had sinned. That's pretty interesting to me. Do we go out and make sacrifice to offer our refuge that Christ has given us to give to others who are caught in sin? What about justice? Well, I want you to notice what the guilty party, party has to do. The guilty party has to stay in the city. Their life will never be the same. There is a penalty to pay for sin, but they're not required to give up their life. Now I want you to notice one other piece of information. What must the guilty party do in order to realize this refuge? Imagine Jeremiah one more time. The axe head is slipped off. Jeremiah actually has two choices. Jeremiah can hold his ground and say, I didn't do it. 
it wasn't me. Is Miriam's husband going to accept that? No. No. Or Jeremiah can run to the city of refuge, confess what happened, and seek redemption in the city of refuge. Let me give us an action step here as I pull all of this together. We need, we need desperately to confess our sins and to seek accountability for our sins. We live in a fallen world. The cities of refuge to me are a reminder that those who have sinned can seek refuge. They could choose to stand their ground and lose their life or flee to where God has called for refuge. We need to confess our sins. People are willing to say, I screwed up. The axe head slipped. I'm sorry. I want redemption. I want refuge from this to sinners. So that was the first in that little bit about the cities of refuge. But there's actually more in this chapter uh, and going into chapter 21 as they're allotting the land. You see, they gave the cities of refuge, and those ended up being cities that were given to the Levites. So remember, each of the tribes received land. The Levites received the cities of refuge, and they received a few other cities. So turn in your Bibles to Joshua 21 now, and what I want you to see here is that planning for holiness requires sacrifice. Planning for holiness requires sacrifice. Let's read Joshua 21, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the family heads of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the heads of the other tribal families of Israel at Shiloh in Canaan, and said to them, The Lord commanded through Moses that you give us towns to live in, with pasture lands for our livestock. So the Lord had commanded the Israelites. He gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands out of their own inheritance. I'm not going to read all of those towns. Instead, I want to talk to you about what's going on in this passage. You see, the Levites were given a special task. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Levites were given an inheritance of the Lord, is what it said. The Lord is your inheritance. The Levites were given the task of ministering to the Lord for the people. They were where the priestly line was going to come. The Levites were responsible for care of God's tabernacle, later of God's temple. They were the individuals that were charged with vocationally serving God making their job serving God. God's people may be asked to sacrifice in order to support God's vocational servants. Look at the end there of verse 3. The Levites, the Israelites gave the Levites the following towns and pasture lands, and then catch the next phrase, out of their own inheritance. It's interesting that this comes right at the end. You see, every tribe of Israel except the Levites had been given land. Judah had been given land. Ephraim had been given land. 
Every tribe had been given land except the Levites. After giving all of the tribes land, God gives an important set of instructions. You give the Levites cities out of your land. God's people were asked to make a sacrifice, a sacrifice in an important way. They were asked to give of their own land for the Levites. Why? Because God wanted Levites in every piece of land. The Levites were going to be the spiritual leaders, the spiritual anchors for the people. And God thought it important that there be Levites in every plot of land so that the people could go to their local Levite, ask him about God's law, ask him what God had to say. By the way, there were other sacrifices that people were asked to make. The Levites were to receive some of the actual uh, sacrificial offerings. When the sacrificial offerings were brought to the temple or to the tabernacle to be sacrificed, the Levites were allotted a portion of the meat as their food. The people were commanded to tithe, to give 10%. The Levites took from that 10% in order to survive. And now they're asked to give some of their land for inheritance. God's people were called to sacrifice for God's vocational servants. I am thrilled that we are in a church where you all sacrifice. And I want to emphasize that I appreciate your sacrifice. I recognize your sacrifice. This is something that we are doing well as a church. We need to continue to sacrifice, to support those whose vocation is ministry. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5. And where I'm going to take you is verses 17 and 18. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. God's model is that the congregation, the people, support his vocational servants. That's God's model. But, I want to also show you something here. I want to show you that God's vocational services, sorry, God's vocational servants may be asked to sacrifice in what they receive. It's not just that the people sacrifice to support God's servants. It's that God's servants are willing to sacrifice in what they receive. Look again, consider again, back in Joshua 20, what had just happened in the preceding chapters. Judah, here's a big piece of land. It's got farms, it's got ranches, it's got cities, it's got towns. Ephraim, here's a big set of land. It's got farms, it's got ranches, it's got cities, it's got towns. Gad, here's a big piece of land. It's got farms, it's got ranches, it's got cities, it's got towns. Levite, you don't get any land. You get a couple of towns and the pastures around them. If you're a Levite, your opportunity to acquire and amass great wealth by owning a big tract of land and hiring a bunch of servants and raising a bunch of animals, there's none. 
there was no opportunity for the Levites in the sense of this big set of land or this big ranch, this big farm. No, the Levites were told, your inheritance is God. That means that you're going to have to trust God to provide. You're not going to receive a big farm. You're not going to receive a big area of land. You're going to receive what God's people give. So my second point here is that God's vocational servants, they may be asked to sacrifice in what they receive, trusting instead that God will provide. I told you I had planned this out weeks in advance. Let me give you one more little um, image or example. I was reading an article two weeks ago that struck me. Uh, the, the title of the article was The Ten Most Wealthy Pastors in the United States. It was disturbing. You see, no pastor should be earning 100 times the salary of the congregation. That's inappropriate. That's not God's vocational servant. That's uh, somebody trying to be king, honestly. The application here is that God's servants need to be willing to serve for whatever God gives. We don't need kings and false prophets. We also do need to support those who serve vocationally. So let me give you an action step. This applies to us all. Ask yourself, am I living in a sacrificial way? You may be from the tribe of Judah, and be asked to provide a town, provide a tithe, provide an offering. You may be a Levite and be asked, don't ask for a big plot of land. You're not going to get it. Instead, accept the tithe that you've been given. Accept the town that you've been given. Live in a sacrificial way. I want to continue in chapter 21 with my final point, and that is that planning for holiness is worth it. It's worth it. Look at how chapter 21 wraps up. This is the end of the land allotment. Look at verses 43 through 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they, put, they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Planning for holiness is worth it. We need to plan to support those who are caught in sin and seeking refuge in the church. The church is God's hospital for sinners. We need to plan to support those who God has called to vocationally minister to spread his word. Because that's God's model. The church with God's leaders in the church who are serving. That's how we plan for holiness. But we need to realize planning for holiness is worth it. Why? First, because God provides physical blessing. God provides physical blessing. He gave the land that had been promised. It says that the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to their ancestors. 
probably a reference actually to Numbers 34. In Numbers 34, God had told Israel they would receive the land that they received here. It's interesting, just as a side note, if you go back further to Genesis 15, that hasn't been fulfilled yet. The promises in Genesis 15 are bigger than what was fulfilled here in Joshua. There's still more to come in God's plan. But God fulfilled the promise he had made in Numbers 34. In fact, God gives us physical blessings. The Bible speaks of the physical blessings that God provides for us. He provides the very air that we breathe. That is a physical blessing. Beyond that, the food we eat is a blessing given to us from God. If you don't believe me, look at Acts 14, 17. The very food we eat is a blessing from God. The rain from the sky, God blesses both the righteous and the unrighteous with rain. Matthew 5, 45. The sun that shines upon us is a blessing from nobody else but God himself. God blesses us immensely. Beyond just the blessing, though, God gives rest. Now, I want to talk about God's rest because sometimes I think we misunderstand God's rest. God's rest does not mean you do nothing. I'm sorry, but that's, that's the way it is. Actually, it doesn't take us long. Just turn in your Bibles a couple of pages to the book of Judges, and you'll see that God's rest was not just doing nothing. God had plenty for them to still do. God's rest is God working through us. God's rest is when God works through us. He's the one that provides the energy. When we admit our weakness, God works through us. And we can be doing an incredible work and simultaneously resting. Incredibly hard in experiencing rest because God's the one doing the work. God gives rest. He didn't give the Israelites nothing to do. They still had much to do. Rather, he provided for the Israelites. I am reminded as I think about this, of Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Let's go there. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus, talking about the burden of sin, says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. As I was thinking about this verse, it struck me. Jesus doesn't say, come to me, and you won't have a yoke. You won't have any burden. No, he says, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. We still have work to do in a fallen world. But through Jesus, it can be restful. It can be calming. That's the God that we serve. Ultimately, 
what this passage back in Joshua is telling us in verses 43 through 45 is that God fulfills his promises. I love the ending. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. We strive for holiness not in order to achieve blessing from God, but rather in order to be more like the faithful God who fulfills his promises to us. Israel had been far from perfect in the book of Joshua. And as we are reaching the end, we have a couple more weeks, but as we're sort of reaching the end of Joshua, don't forget the failures. But remember, those were the people's failures God was faithful. God's faithful to people, even though we fail. So let me give you an action step. Determine to plan for holiness. What does that mean? Look at the previous two action steps. Pick one. Pick one that you want to take action on. Is it that where you're at in life right now, you need to confess sin and seek accountability? That might be where you're at, where it's something is bogging you down, some aspect of sin in your life that you bring in, it's bogging you down, and you need to confess that and seek accountability from somebody. Talk to me. Talk to one of the deacons. Maybe it is that you need to live in a sacrificial way, recognizing that God's going to fulfill his promises. He is going to take care of you. You can live in a sacrificial way knowing that God will take care of you. I don't know which it is for you, but think about it for a minute. How would God have you plan for holiness in your life today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are holy, set apart, clean from sin. We're not. And I confess that to you. We fail. In fact, sin has tainted us so much that we can do everything right and still be wrong because it's at our very core. We are born sinners. But you in your wisdom have provided for holiness through confession, through accountability, coming to somebody else and saying, I am a sinner and I need help. You provide a plan through vocational servants who have given their life in order to support the holiness of others. We thank you that in your perfect plan, you have provided for holiness. And ultimately, we thank you that you are a promise-keeping God. That what you have said, not one of your words will fail. And so today, I pray that you would work in our hearts. I pray that if there are any 
who are stuck in sin, that they would confess. Come to you and ask for the salvation that you provide. Come to you and ask for the forgiveness you provide. Come to you and ask for the freedom from sin that you offer. Father, I pray that you would help us to live in a sacrificial way. In Jesus' name, amen.